Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I know you're just dying to know this, so let me not keep you in suspense. King Charles has decided, has decreed, I guess you would say, since he's a king, that Harry and Meghan's little kids can have royal titles. So now we have Prince Archie and Princess Lilibet, who just turned two. Uh, I think that's pretty magnanimous, if you ask me. And by the way, in looking into this, there's a whole, like, hundreds of years old history of who gets to have royal titles and who doesn't get to have royal titles, depending on how far away you are from succession to the throne. Um, And he also invited the couple that obviously, particularly Harry, you know, has trashed the royal family, uh, to his coronation this spring. And then, you know, when I read that, uh, well, there'll be an answer soon, like, why'd you say yes? What else you got to do? Why would you even, you know, if, if your dad is willing at least to mend fences to that public extent and think about what a snub it would be to say you're not invited. It's just, you know, the the, the correct answer is, what time do I need to be there? What do I need to wear? Um, I saw this in The Guardian. Seems like a fairly huge deal. Scientists have created mice with two biological fathers. By generating eggs from male cells, a development that opens up radical new possibilities for reproduction. The advance could ultimately pave the way for treatments for severe forms of infertility, as well as raising the tantalizing prospect of same-sex couples being to have a bio- being able to have a biological child together in the future. Uh, I don't quite understand how the science works with only male cells, how you get the eggs. And obviously, you know, doing it with a few mice is not the same thing as uh, making sure that it could be done and is safe for human beings. But wowza. I mean, that's really something. And would obviously have all kinds of implications for political debate as well. Jenna Ellis, you certainly saw her on TV a lot uh, after the 2020 election. She was one of Donald Trump's lawyers, along with Rudy and Sidney Powell. Um, She has been censured by a judge for misrepresenting evidence about the allegedly, supposedly stolen election on at least 10 occasions. This is a judge in Colorado um, backing that up by putting out various, what are described here as misrepresentations on TV networks and on Twitter. Just between November 13th, 2020, that's about a week after the election, and December 22nd, 2020. Ellis uh, retweeted a, a Twitter post saying she never admitted she lied, uh, wasn't intentional or dishonest, but the judge had a different view. Let me get to story number one. It is, to me, a fascinating story that has not received all that much attention, although key news organizations have gotten into it. And, you know, I probably have a little bit of a bias here because as a journalist, I instinctively feel that, you know, when you have the prospect of heavy-handed government agencies trying to dig up 
or demanding information on journalists, that that is troubling, to say the least, deeply disturbing. And I'm surprised this story hasn't caught caught on more, but there's a hearing today which might boost its visibility. So my lead here is Matt Taibbi. You know his name because he is... uh, you know, longtime Rolling Stone writer who now has his own Substack and worked with Elon Musk on the Twitter files. Probably did as much for Musk as anybody else. There were some other journalists, Barry Weiss and others, of course. So Taibbi is ripping into his former colleagues in the mainstream media uh, for their indifference to this move by the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. And let me just get to the, uh, the money quote here because it's just amusing. So Taibbi writes that his former colleagues are spineless, corrupt, amoral F-wits. Just wanted to give you the full flavor. Now, what's he so excited about? This is not just about Matt Taibbi getting, uh, popping off. The Federal Trade Commission is demanding information on almost every aspect of Twitter. The supposed reason that the federal agency is doing this is that all the layoffs that Elon Musk has done could, in the commission's august view, um, undermine Twitter's ability to protect private information. And this stems from a Wall Street Journal article. So we're talking here about a blue chip newspaper, and this is not just, you know, a bunch of online kvetchers. So the Wall Street Journal revealed that the FTC is demanding all kinds of information, saying that they want the names of journalists with whom the company has shared internal communications as part of an ongoing Twitter files expose. Well, first of all, those are mostly public. The people who have been involved have written stories about it. They have what's called bylines. You could look it up. We already know their names. Now, could there be some other people, you know, working uh, as assistants or, you know, secondary staff? Sure. But now, in 12 different letters sent to Twitter and its lawyers since Elon Musk took over, which is back uh, in October, the FTC also asked the company to identify all journalists, uh, not only who had access to Twitter files, but who had various kinds of dealings with Twitter. And here's a report that kind of knocks this down. There is no logical reason, and this was, I guess, obtained or published by the journal, why the FTC needs to know the identities of journalists engaging with Twitter. There's no logical reason why the FTC, on the basis of user privacy, needs to analyze all of Twitter's personnel decisions. And there is no logical reason why the FTC needs every single internal internal Twitter communication about Elon Musk. I'm sorry, every single internal communication about Elon Musk? Uh, Doesn't that sound like uh, a, a grand government fishing expedition. Now, it may well be that I mean, the FTC is chaired by a Democrat, the Biden administration, not a big fan of Elon Musk, but this sounds 
like such overreach, so heavy-handed, so beyond the pale. Or, you know, I mean, I, I have no problem with the Federal Trade Commission trying to, to decide whether uh, this stems out of previous litigation, I believe. Uh, Twitter is protecting the privacy of people who don't want their names out there. And Elon Musk responded on his site, this is a serious attack on the Constitution by a federal agency. And also, it gets into the question of journalistic methods and sources. Uh, and, and why does the FTC need to know this? Let's just say I'm covering Twitter. And I text somebody there. I'm not on a texting basis with Elon, in case you were wondering. It's kind of busy. Um, and I say, hey, I understand you're doing X. I'd sure like to get that story first. And they give me a report or whatever on the basis that the person will remain a confidential source. I mean, these are transactions that go on in journalism every single bleeping day. And now the government wants to know about that and possibly find out who my confidential sources are, or even if it's not confidential, even if, you know, some of these tech reporters uh, who are, who do seem to have a, some kind of, you know, a lot of this plays out online. It's how I know it. Um, some kind of uh, relationship with Elon Musk, relationship in the sense of an electronic relationship. You know, they post things, he responds to them, maybe they message him privately, I don't know. Why is that the government's business? Why would anybody think it's okay for the FTC to get this stuff? And that's why Matt Taibbi is so upset. So I'm going to stay on this. Uh, we'll check out the hearing today. Um, maybe these allegations are overblown, but... You know, here we have the Democrats complaining about the House Republicans who were gearing up for their investigations, which is absolutely par for the course when a Chamber of Commerce changes hands. So obviously the Democrats, when they controlled both houses, did plenty of investigations of the Trump administration. And just as obviously uh, House Republicans are looking into you know, what Jim Jordan calls the weaponization of the federal government, particularly the FBI, uh, looking into uh, Hunter Biden and the laptop. And that brings up Twitter, too, although, you know, uh, Twitter, the old management, the pre-Musk era, uh, apologized many times in saying we were wrong to suppress that New York Post story you know, weeks before the 2020 election. So, but when you get a, I guess it wouldn't be called a subpoena, although I guess it could also get to that level. A federal agency comes along and says, we want every internal communication that involves Elon Musk. It, 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 it a little bit smells like a witch hunt. And also, especially with its much smaller staff and they're trying to you know, keep the, uh, the lights on and, and keep the uh, tweets flowing, um, how much manpower that would take to comply with such a request. So I'll keep an eye on that. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. 
Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Number two, the New York Times has a headline I really like today. It says the Biden budget is DOA being presented today. And it's absolutely true. It's got a whole lot of tax increases that House Republicans are not going to allow to pass um, by any in any way, shape, or form. Maybe the tiniest compromise. I don't know, but, you know, that would be political suicide for them. And often the press plays this game like, oh, Biden's uh, budget faces a tough uphill climb. No, it doesn't. I mean, parts of it will pass, but when we're talking about the tax stuff, it is dead on arrival. It's not going to pass in anything like its current form. It's just part of the Beltway Kabuki game. So a headline today, um, Axios, uh, I think following up a Bloomberg scoop, saying this will... um, include a 25% tax on billionaires. So I went to my bank book, checked it, said, okay, I'm, yeah, I'm not really close to being a billionaire, so it's not going to affect me. Uh, but that sounded like a soak the rich tax. What it actually is when you read into it is a 25% minimum tax. In other words, they shouldn't pay zero. On the richest 0.01% of Americans. And I would imagine that if you are in that esteemed group of making so much money, 0.01%, that you could probably afford to pay 25% minimum tax because lots of other people with a lot less money are paying, depending on their income and investments, you know, up to, up, uh, I guess it's now 37%. Biden wants to raise it to the 39.6, I believe, percent that it was before the Trump tax cuts. Anyway, National View, Jim Garrity has an interesting piece, which I'll just plunge into. Uh, here is one of the clearest signs that Joe Biden is attempting to steer back to the middle as his reelection bid approaches, and a sign that every previous policy choice he's made is negotiable if it will help his reelection bid. So, Before I tell you what it is, I want to just take a step back because this happened in the Senate yesterday. Yesterday, the Senate overruled, overturned a new D.C. criminal code. And you've probably heard something about this, so you've heard me talk about it. It, The thing is just outrageous. It abolishes mandatory minimum sentences for all kinds of crimes. It lowers sentences for... Uh, armed robbery, carjacking, sexual assault. Uh, Why anybody thinks this is a good idea, certainly the mayor of D.C. did not, is unbelievable. Now, that impulse conflicts with home rule. Home rule is is what the District of Columbia had to fight for for years, even to have its own elected government. But Congress, and yes, this is kind of plantation-like, can overturn D.C. government laws. So the people who love home rule say this is an outrage, and I'm very sympathetic to home rule, but I don't want this D.C. criminal code to pass. So the Senate yesterday turned, uh, uh, voted it down. I guess you have to pass a bill to do that. And President Biden said he will sign it. And there was a lot of, first of all, there was a lot of political upset because uh, the president, the White House, maybe with a new chief of staff, kind of blindsided House Democrats who already voted for it and now are stuck with it, you know, there will be all the 30-second ads in the next campaign. 
Um, but it showed Biden, you know, having a good feel for not allowing his party to be labeled soft on crime. And I think it does show him moving toward the middle. You know, he was never a defund the police guy. So now in this National View piece, um, the Biden administration is now considering reviving the practice of detaining migrant families who cross the border illegally, policy Biden denounced as a candidate in 2020. So this, of course, even the mere prospect that this was going to happen, uh, set off you know a series of explosions, particularly among um, people who are immigration advocates for migrants, I guess I should say. Um, New York Times, Biden administration considering reviving the practice. Uh, the same policy the president shut down over the past two years because he wanted a more humane immigration system, officials familiar with the discussion said. Though no final decisions have been made, the move would be a stark reversal for President Biden, who came into office promising to adopt a more compassionate approach to the border after the harsh policies of former President Trump. Biden administration has largely ended the practice of family detention, instead releasing families into the U.S. temporarily and using ankle bracelets, traceable cell phones, and other methods to keep track of them. Well, that's good because the... uh, the whole idea of splitting up families was always just horrendous. Now, here is Corinne Jean-Pierre at the briefing. Question, President, put an end to the policy of detaining migrant families. As a candidate, he said, you should not be locking people up. You aren't ruling it out either. So why is this even being considered as a possible option now? You think the reporter has a point of view on this? Corinne says, I'm not going to comment on rumors that are out there. I'm not saying it's being considered, but you're not saying it's not. But I'm not saying it is, and I'm not saying I'm not. I'm saying I'm not going to speak to rumors. And what Jim Garrity says is, if the Biden administration was not considering this option, she just would have said the administration is not considering this option. Describing the move as a stark reversal, it's like saying Benedict Arnold had some inconsistent loyalties. And then he quotes stuff that Biden has said uh, as a candidate. It was a moral failing and a national shame. Uh, when children are locked away in overcrowded detention centers and the government seeks to keep them there indefinitely. But the problem is the border is a mess and Republicans have more political power now in D.C. to highlight, to point out, to generate media coverage of the fact that the border is a mess. Yes, there was somewhat of a decline from, I believe it was, December to January, but it's because Biden is changing the policies. And this is a very hot-button issue, particularly for people who are either conservative or, let's say, center-right. And, you know, he's taken other steps, too. Now, we, we can get into the argument. And, you know, and by the way, there's not really any doubt who leaked this, people who want to stop this policy. I mean, it's obviously being seriously considered. It may well happen. Uh, and so it's, a, it's an age-old political maneuver, which is you are opposed to it, so you leak it to the New York Times or some other news organization, and you galvanize all the people who would be against it. You force uh, the administration to backtrack, and maybe they soften it, maybe they don't do it, but I don't know. It sounds to me like this is under pretty serious consideration. Story number three. My column today, and I highly recommend it, is about the contrast in media coverage between Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom, both fighting with corporations. So you have a Republican governor fighting with Disney, 
and in fact declaring victory, saying there's a new sheriff in town because he won control of the special tax district that Disney had used basically to govern itself uh, in Orlando for decades. And that was described in the coverage. I won't give it all away, uh, you know, as uh, the, the Disney was a target of DeSantis's vitriol and um, pushing, and then critics were quoted as saying, pushing an anti-gay agenda. And because all the, the, the root of this is Disney under the, its previous management, uh, before Bob Iger came back, um, objecting to the law, which all the papers now say, that they don't say gay law, but that's not a fair moniker. It's a law that says you can't teach public school students from kindergarten to third grade about sexual orientation or gender identity, and those are pretty young kids. At the same time, the governor of California announced that he's cutting ties with Walgreens because Walgreens said it was not going to sell abortion pills in a number of states. And Newsom is being covered as a guy who's fighting for the rights of women and he's a champion and is a hero. I mean, the Democrat versus the Republican. They're not exactly, obviously, parallel, but they're, you know, these are two giant corporations that are doing battle with governors. So here's a follow-up piece now in the Washington Post saying, basically, drugstores have it rough. Walgreens' efforts at damage control this week appear to leave no one satisfied as they continue to attract criticism from both sides of the abortion divide. This is the second largest uh, drug chain in the U.S., Drug uh, stores have faced criticism from various quarters for selling cigarettes and unhealthy snacks and shifting policies over birth control. But the conflagration, that's such a journalistic word, you don't usually see somebody saying, whoa, that was really some conflagration. Over dispensing abortion pills eclipses those controversies, well, tell me about it, and poses a threat to drug chains' relationships with consumers. So now there's a hashtag, Boycott Walgreens, which is hot on Twitter, fueled by abortion rights supporters who are angry that this company will not dispense abortion pills in 21 states. And that includes four states where abortion remains legal. It gets kind of tangled. On the other side, you have pro-life demonstrators who disrupted the chain's annual shareholder meeting and can't and plan to continue protesting Walgreens for just dispensing this drug, which is I guess I'm going to have to learn how to pronounce this. Mifepristone. Mifepristone. Anyway, they are attempting to portray retail drugstores as a new version of abortion providers. Well, this is the new battleground, you know, because we've always thought of abortion as you know, involving abortion clinics and whether there'd be violence at those clinics and whether people would have the legal right um, to go to those clinics. But now there's actually a way, and has been for some time, to have a medically induced abortion. So here is the president of Students for Life in America, a group opposed to abortion, quoted as saying in in the post, it's abortion politics in your neighborhood pharmacy. They brought this on themselves. Walgreens was trying to find a middle ground based on legal criteria because no company wants to be accused of selling a product that is illegal in a certain state. In other words, it might be perfectly Remember when states first started legalizing uh, marijuana? You could go to Colorado and you could go into a, you know, a state-approved store and buy some pot. But if you tried to sell that pot 
in Mississippi, you could be arrested and charged. That's sort of what this is. You, you know, the country is dividing in the post-Roe era into states that allow abortion and states, and states that either don't allow abortion or uh, have severe restrictions on the time frame uh, of abortions and whatever the exceptions might be. Uh, I mentioned yesterday Ron DeSantis making sympathetic sounds about a six-week ban, meaning no abortions allowable after six weeks um, after a missed period. Uh, anyway, so Walgreens is not only trying to fight this or at least find a, 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 a safe harbor, but you've got CVS, you've got Rite Aid all very closely following this, although not making public pronouncements uh, about how this is going to play out. You know, when the Supreme Court conservative supermajority overturned Roe, the whole idea was this would be returned to the people. The decisions would be made uh, by local officials who presumably could be influenced more heavily by their constituents, whether it was the governor, whether it was state legislators. Um, but now we're talking about drugstores, you know, the place that you go to uh, fill your prescription and, you know, buy cold pills and pick up some diapers. So the battleground has clearly shifted, and Walgreens, I think, is getting torched here by both sides. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Number four is about Carrie Lake. And you remember Carrie Lake. She is the longtime TV anchor in the Phoenix area who decided to run for governor as a Republican. Um, very smooth in front of the camera. Very charismatic. Big... Uh, acolyte of Donald Trump, um, used to say harsh things about journalists. Everybody kind of thought she was going to win, but she didn't. She lost to Katie Hobbs, who is now presiding as the governor of Arizona. Uh, Carrie Lake has cried fraud. Who does that remind you of? She has had a couple of appeals in court that she has lost. Now she's trying to get the state Supreme Court take up the case. This piece in the Atlantic says, um, basically, this is not going to happen. It's going to be fruitless. There's no evidence to support her claims of fraud. But her lawsuits are keeping her on everyone's radar. And like Trump, Lake has taken her election fraud show on the road. She's uh, reportedly been spending money, raising money for her legal bills, delivering paid speeches. Last month, she went to Iowa. She spent two days complaining about uh, rigged elections. And she didn't exactly reject a suggestion that she could be Trump's running mate. Yeah, all of a sudden, like, you know, we've, the media are like, well, who's Donald Trump going to pick? Well, I don't think it'll be Nikki Haley. Well, first he's got to win the nomination. And who knows who he's going to pick? I don't think he knows who he's going to pick, if indeed he wins the nomination. Oh, it was Axios that reported that Carrie Lake was among four women Trump is considering. 
Isn't that interesting? So, you know, a lot of people, very media people, very focused on 2024. I guess they think that 2023 is just too boring with uh, hearings and investigations and tax policy and Medicare and Social Security. Anyway, she was a featured speaker at CPAC last week. It's one way to uh, get some attention. And... She won the CPAC straw poll. Remember, there were mostly MAGA people there. It was a Trump convention for vice president. But she put out this statement. We're flattered, but unfortunately, our legal team says the Constitution won't allow for her to serve as governor and VP at the same time, presuming that she ultimately will become governor, which I think is the longest of long shots. Um, She's also met with um, national Republican strategists, might make a run. For the Senate seat in Arizona, that's the one held by Kirsten Sinema, who has now left the Democratic Party, so it could be a three-way race, and she might easily win that. But anyway, Atlantic says Carrie Lake is, is a plausible VP choice for Trump for one reason. She's demonstrated unflagging loyalty to the former president. She kissed a painting of him. How did I miss that? She vacuumed his carpet. I don't know. But for Trump, there are also a few downsides to picking Lake. The first is that she's comparatively young, attractive, and charismatic. By choosing her, Trump would run the risk of being completely outshone. He famously does not enjoy this. That's a nice little bit of understatement. Uh, Plus, Lake, unlike Trump, has never won an election. And fraud claims aside, Trump may be hesitant to associate himself with a big loser. Finally, even though Lake might bring a few more women to Trump's side, It's not clear she would help shore up his support among suburbanites, which is what Trump would really need as the 2024 nominee. I mean, it is true. You know, you have uh, rural areas that tend to be more conservative. You have big cities that, uh, of course, are more democratic. And the battle for these elections is always fought in the middle, um, in the suburbs. Women... This is obviously a big gender gap. Trump has trouble with the gender gap with women. So if he is thinking ahead and thinking he would run with a woman, which would to some degree offset the Biden-Harris ticket, if indeed the Biden-Harris ticket is the one that people have a chance to vote for in 2024, um, it makes sense. But it's true. If you pick somebody who is extremely conservative then you've kind of uh, lost the opportunity to win over some of those independents, some of those women, some of those suburbanites. And there were a lot of stories written about how Carrie Lake, you know, used to be sort of a you know, standard journalist, left-leaning, uh, but she saw her opening. Maybe her views evolved. She's fun to watch. But I, for one, am not going to spend any more time, at least this week, Worrying about whose running mate we're going to get to when we're months away from even the first debate on the Republican side. Um, Almost a year away from anybody voting. You know, the veep stakes goes on long enough. We don't have to start it right now. I'm opting out. All right, story number five. And those of you who listen regularly know I'm a big tennis fan. So, Novak Djokovic, who I'm a fan of just because he has, he's just, has incredible tenacity, and often he loses the first two sets with the first set and has to come back and barely ekes out a victory in the fifth set. Uh, he's got a problem, 
And it's a problem he's had before. Uh, remember when he couldn't get into Australia to play in the Australian Open? Um, and I thought I was very critical of him then. He, what, he lied about uh, vaccination status or was at least misleading, but it was a shame that he didn't get to play. He's, you know, basically the top men's player in the world. He's uh, trying to win a few more Grand Slam events. And now the next two important tournaments are here in the U.S., which doesn't allow foreigners who have not been vaccinated against COVID-19 into the country. Now, interestingly, as the uh, New York Times puts it, the rule, which even some staunchly pro-vaccine experts say is obsolete, has been in effect since late 2021. It includes certain exemptions, but it wasn't clear how Djokovic um, might qualify for a waiver. He desperately wants to play. Oh, this is interesting. This is very Washington. So he started making calls, or his people started making calls, to those who might have connections to the Biden administration, including Billie Jean King. So far, he hasn't gotten his waiver. But he's got a few more weeks before this tournament in Indian Wells, California, and then the Miami Open. And Ron DeSantis wrote a letter to Joe Biden saying, I really want Djokovic to be able to play in the Miami Open. It'd be great for the economy. Uh, I'll go pick him up in a boat myself. I mean, it was a funny letter. Um, but here's the deal. Um, so then with Rafael Nadal, the other biggest men's player, um, injured right now, and Roger Federer having retired, and Serena Williams having retired, I mean, tennis could really use Djokovic. And it just, it was a different situation a couple of years ago where uh, people were more hopeful about the effect of vaccines, but also trying very hard. Remember when everybody couldn't get it and then people over 65 can get it and people with pre-existing conditions could get it. And then, you know, gradually it was opened up to everybody else. So um, the president of the United States does have the power to grant an exemption that would be, quote, in the national interest as determined by the secretary of state, secretary of transportation or secretary of homeland security or their designees. Wow. So Djokovic and one of his allies uh, reached out to the chief executive of the Tennis Channel, which I bet, who I bet, Ken Solomon is his name, would like to have somebody with star power playing in these Grand Slam events or these major championship events. There's only four Grand Slams. Um, And it just so happens that the chief executive of the Tennis Channel was a major fundraiser for Joe Biden, and for Barack Obama. So then Solomon started calling Biden administration officials to plead the case for Djokovic, saying it was unfair and his presence would really boost attendance at both of these uh, tournaments. It just seems like, you know, everybody else walking around without masks, we act like the uh, pandemic is over, Biden doesn't talk about it much anymore. Um, People still get booster shots, a lot of people don't. So why should this guy be singled out? I mean, it's not like, first of all, he doesn't have to hug the other players. It's not like being a, uh, a basketball player where you get tangled up. And it just seems unfair. It just seems like it is an outdated law that should be changed and not just for Djokovic. No joke. So I will, uh, we will all see whether or not this kind of lobbying, but isn't it is something wrong? Like he should just be able to make his case publicly, a press conference or something, and it should be waived in my view. I mean, we're talking about two t- test tournaments here. It's not going to result in 
you know, a, a second pandemic. But instead, you got to have the guy who was the fundraiser and those of them, Billie Jean King, and that's just the way Washington works. And so Joke is playing the game. Thanks for sharing this uh, competitive time with me, competitive in the sense that you could be doing lots of other things. Maybe you're doing lots of other things right now, but at least listening to the podcast. And we will see you all tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. 